Welcome to the AM Labs podcast, where we work to understand labs better, to care for patients better. I'm Nathan Rocky. And I'm Jacob Louie. We believe that a solid understanding of labs will help us treat patients and not just their lab values. This is the AM Labs podcast. All right. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of AM Labs. Woot. Jacob, how are you feeling? I am pretty stoked. How about you, Rocky? Feeling good. Uh, I'm just wondering if there's still time to change it to Lab Magicians, where we learn labs to become better clinicians. It's not too late. We'll have to wait for feedback from our okay. listeners. Okay. We can, we, AM Labs, here we are. Yeah, here we are. Well, we're excited to start with a familiar lab to many of us, the hemoglobin A1C. We'll begin with an overview in the history of the lab, and then we'll move into some key pieces of literature that establish its use today. From there, we'll dive into its clinical utility with the help of two clinicians at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. So, Nathan, where does the story of hemoglobin A1C start? Well, it starts with an early recognition that there were different types of hemoglobin molecules. So way back in 1949, Linus Pauling, who, by the way, won the Nobel Prize twice, once for chemistry and another for the Nobel Peace Prize. Sort of makes you wonder what we're doing with ourselves, huh, Jacob? Just podcasting here. AM Labs. So Pauling published a paper in Science about sickle cell anemia that showed that hemoglobin had at least one variant. But let's back up. What is hemoglobin? That's probably a good question to answer. Um, hemoglobin is a protein molecule with four globin subunits that binds to oxygen in the lungs and then delivers that oxygen to our tissues. Okay, yes. I remember that red blood cells are just donut-shaped sacs of hemoglobin. And what Pauling demonstrated is that not all hemoglobin molecules are the same. Consider sickle cell disease, which is what Pauling studied. The hemoglobin S molecule contains a beta subunit protein with a missense point mutation, glutamate to valine, and this causes sickle cell disease. Hemoglobin C is a similar concept, but with glutamate to lysine. We also know of different examples like fetal versus adult hemoglobin, and even adult hemoglobin varies according to different subgroups. HbA1 has two alpha and two beta subunits, while HbA2 has two alpha and two delta subunits instead. HbA1 is vastly more abundant than the other variants, making up about 95 to 98% of the hemoglobin in most adults. So all these flashbacks to step one are to say, there are different types of hemoglobins. Flashbacks to step one, that for me means waking up nervously at two in the morning and opening first aid. Wow, that sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. Right. So now back to the development after Pauling's paper in the 40s. So in 1955, a study by Kunkel and colleagues published in the journal Science called New Hemoglobin in Normal Adult Blood showed that adult hemoglobin in healthy patients was not perfectly uniform on gel electrophoresis. And in 1958, this was expanded upon by Allen et al. using chromatography which showed that there were five extra fractions of adult hemoglobin present, and they named them hemoglobin A1A, 1B, 1C, 1D, and 1E. And these were called fast hemoglobins, fast hemoglobins, simply because they eluded more quickly on the ion exchange chromatography than the normal adult hemoglobin. Then, in a completely separate study in the 1960s, Rabber and colleagues showed that in patients with diabetes, there was this extra component of the hemoglobin when you separated it with gel electrophoresis. 
This component was remarkably similar to the 1C component found in the chromatography study back in the 50s. So while patients without diabetes had between 4 to 6% of their hemoglobin as this 1C component, patients with diabetes had up to two times as much. So from that, researchers began establishing a relationship between diabetes and the 1C component of hemoglobin. Wow. So Alan et al. in the 50s just found that there were these five extra fractions. And then a decade or so later, it was just discovered that one of these fractions was higher in patients with diabetes, and that was the 1C component. So a relationship between diabetes and A1C was demonstrated. But more importantly, because we know diabetes to be a disease of complications secondary to elevated blood glucose, it was important to establish a link between hemoglobin A1C and diabetes complications, such as retinopathy, which is a hallmark microvascular complication of diabetes. So the Diabetes Control and Complications Trial, the DCCT, and the UK Perspective Diabetes Study, the UK PDS, were important trials in the 90s, which showed relationships between hemoglobin A1C and diabetes complications in type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Okay, so when we say HbA1c then, we're talking about adult hemoglobin, two alphas and two beta subunits with one difference, the C. We now know that HbA1c is a glycated form of the adult hemoglobin molecule. So let's talk a little biochemistry now. To form this molecule, glucose reacts to form a bond with the hemoglobin. And this occurs via a reaction with no catalyst. This is non-enzymatic glycation. Importantly, the reaction occurs in two steps, and the second step is irreversible. So when the glucose binds to a hemoglobin molecule, it's stuck there. Until, of course, the hemoglobin or red blood cell dies. And on average, red blood cells live for about three to four months. Importantly, the rate of glycation depends on the concentration of glucose in the blood. For example, a 2002 paper by Rolfing and colleagues established a linear relationship between HbA1c and plasma glucose. Okay, so as glucose levels in the blood increase, hemoglobin A1c increases in a predictable way. So it sounds like A1c has been shown to be related to complications of diabetes, but also has been shown to be directly related to blood sugar levels. Right, which makes sense. They're all pretty much related. So when we're diagnosing diabetes, a fasting plasma glucose greater than 126, a two-hour plasma glucose after an oral glucose tolerance test greater than 200, or an A1C of 6.5% or greater will all give you the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. Right. Or with a random value of 200 combined with symptoms of hyperglycemia. Okay, so the lab value re-report is simply the percentage of adult hemoglobin molecules that are glycated. So why is it a percentage and not a value? Well, the absolute value would differ depending on the hemoglobin count. If someone has a hemoglobin of 12 versus 15, say, so the A1C is adjusted to try to correct for that, reflecting the proportion of hemoglobin that is glycated. That makes sense. But despite how handy HbA1c is and clearly was for decades, the establishment of HbA1c as part of diagnostic criteria for diabetes happened much later. This was because the lab assays needed to be sufficiently standardized. The lab assays used in the U.S. now are standardized with the National Glycohemoglobin Standardization Program, that's a mouthful, since 1996, and then in 2009, 
the American Diabetes Association officially recommended adding it as an option to diagnose diabetes at the cutoff of 6.5%. Gotcha. Wow. Well, it's important that the labs are accurate. I'm, I'm grateful to that National Glycohemoglobin Standardization Program. Nice work. Thank you. So to summarize, hemoglobin A1c is a glycated form of adult hemoglobin and is a surrogate for the average blood glucose levels for about the previous three months. The A1c levels are used for the diagnosis and treatment monitoring of diabetes. Now that we have some historical perspective on the development of this lab, let's get into some clinical applications. We're very fortunate to have had the opportunity to interview Dr. Simha and Dr. Haftal. So we interviewed them separately with the goal of including pearls for our episode, but first we do want to note that everything they said was gold and cutting anything was very challenging. Seriously, it was just a series of pearls from both the primary care perspective and the specialty perspective. And how lucky are we to have had two experts join for our first episode of a random medical education podcast that two medical students are starting. Right. And just taking some time out of their day to, to devote to us. That was great. So anyways, without further ado, here are Dr. Simha and Dr. Haftal. I'm Vinay Simha. I'm a consultant in the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes and Metabolism at Mayo Clinic, Rochester. I've been here for now close to eight years. And before that, I was at UT Southwestern in Texas, Dallas. Um, so I've been with endocrinology now for almost two decades. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. So I'm Dr. Luke Hoftal. Um, I am an internal medicine physician at Mayo Clinic. I specifically work in the division of community internal medicine. So it's a primary care practice. Uh, for uh, the the city and the surrounding county that's within the Mayo Clinic structure. Um, as you mentioned, I'm the clerkship director uh, for the third year clerkship, and I'm also a firm chief in our uh, internal medicine uh, residency practice. So let's get into the basis of why we use hemoglobin A1c to diagnose type 2 diabetes. We'll talk about why it's important to have a value like A1c that measures mean blood glucose concentrations. We'll also explore how it's different from other methods to evaluate diabetes like fasting plasma glucose or oral glucose tolerance test. And then we'll discuss some common pitfalls in using the A1c to diagnose type 2 diabetes. So the first thing to note is that A1c creates a more long-term picture of blood glucose control, not just in that moment for the draw. And there are lots of advantages of the hemoglobin A1c over the glucose. The most important thing being that this is a measure of integrated blood glucose over a period of time. So the one glucose measurement, you know, you don't want to hang your hat on that. So you just had a bad day the previous day, or you just had a big lunch, a big dinner, or so many things that can affect a single glucose measurement. Whereas measuring an integrated glucose uh, level is probably a better um, uh, it's a better measure of chronic glycemia rather than opposed to a single glucose spike. So hemoglobin A1c, a measure of average blood sugar concentrations over the past 8 to 12 weeks, is not only a great surrogate for long-term glucose control, but more importantly, as we mentioned earlier, it also has credibility in predicting diabetic complications. Here's Dr. Simha again. 
as you know, diabetes is not just a disease about blood glucose, it's about the complications of having high blood glucose. So the idea was to get at, to identify the level of blood glucose that will identify patients who are at risk for these diabetic complications. And there are lots of diabetes complications, but the one complication which is kind of easy to objectify and which is all more or less specific for diabetes is retinopathy. So to a large extent, this was based on trying to identify those who will develop retinopathy, significant retinopathy. And glucose does that. But then they also found that so does hemoglobin A1c. So now we know that HbA1c is a pretty good tool in diagnosing diabetes. But how does it compare with other established tools like the fasting plasma glucose or the two-hour oral glucose challenge? I don't know about you, Nathan, but every time I heard about HbA1c in medical school, it sounded like it was the holy grail of diabetes diagnosis. But it turns out there's still utility in other methods. You know, at least for my my personal practices, I, I tend to still like to use the fasting glucose, um, but an A1c is very, very reasonable. Um, you know, uh, this will probably come up several times, but A1c is so nice because of its stability uh, it's convenience in getting patient doesn't have to fast or anything like that. Um, and it's so much of what we know about diabetes and the outcomes, uh, and the goals that we shoot for with diabetes is tied to the A1C just because of its, of its stability and, and how all the studies really tie into it. Um, but you know, when it comes to screening a fasting glucose, um, I find uh, can still be really, really helpful. Um, as I'm sure you, you've explored on kind of how what what is behind an A1C, it's it's certainly not without its potential pitfalls and things like CKD or anemia or blood transfusions, blood donations, um, hemoglobinopathies can can make it so it's 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 not always as reliable. And so I so. Uh, for, and for my, for my practice, I, I don't feel strongly. So if a resident comes and works with me and wants to use an A1C, that's usually fine with me. Um, but a fasting glucose uh, uh, is probably, uh, for all comers, is the one I like to use. In fact, there are specific patients in whom a hemoglobin A1C should not be used, or at least be used with caution. So this can come up when fasting plasma glucose results are much different than hemoglobin A1C results. And Dr. Simha mentions this. So whenever there is discordance between any two measures, you want to know which one is a more accurate reflection of what is happening. Okay? So we do see this in a lot of people, especially people who are sick. Okay? So there, the A1C may not truly reflect glycemia. Okay? So the most, of course, the most celebrated um, cases are those where there is a hemoglobinopathy. Okay. Um, but of course, these are these are quite obvious. Okay, most people realize this. But then some of the other things which are often not understood are like things like people with liver disease and who have a huge spleen. Okay, so we see this all the time: splenomegaly, accelerated red cell turnover. So they might have a spuriously low A1C. So pretty much when there's huge differences a fasting plasma glucose may be more accurate for screening. So let's talk briefly about other scenarios where hemoglobin A1c is not a perfectly reliable test. We always have to think about what the story is behind the A1c. So from a pathophysiologic standpoint, 
Pathologies that obscure the A1C interpretation can be categorized into four major buckets. And so these are changes in red blood cell lifespan, hemoglobinopathies, other systemic causes like chronic kidney disease and pregnancy, and then finally there's a host of iatrogenic causes. Those are some good categories to help think about this. So let's start with red blood cell lifespan. That refers to how quickly cells are getting eaten up by the spleen and how quickly the bone marrow is making new red blood cells. Importantly, with hemoglobin, that's not glycated. So Nathan, can you give some examples of changes in red blood cell turnover? Yeah, for sure. So both increasing or decreasing red cell turnover should cause you to pause in interpreting the A1C. Decreased red blood cell turnover can lead to longer lifespans in red blood cells, such as in the case of vitamin B12 or folate deficiency. Increased turnover can be caused by things like chronic hemolysis. There's, of course, the classic glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase or G6PD deficiency. You remember that one? Of course. So G6PD allows for NADP to turn into NADPH, which allows for the reduction of glutathione. When you have lower NADPH in red cells, you get hemolytic anemia due to the inability to handle oxidizing agents. Like fava beans. Fava beans. You nailed it. But more often, things like drugs or an infection. And the next bucket would be hemoglobinopathies, which means anything like sickle cell or hemoglobin C. Because remember, HbA1 is the specific hemoglobin variant that's measured in the assay. But a hemoglobinopathy in and of itself doesn't mean that the A1C can't be used because a majority of assays in the U.S. won't, be, won't be really be affected by common hemoglobin variants. The National Glycohemoglobin Standardization Program has a website where you can see what assays are affected by common variants. In the rows, there are types of assays, and in the columns are the common hemoglobin variants. The NGSP coming back again. Exactly. However, so with, with sickle cell, remember that this can cause increased turnover too. So it is a hemoglobinopathy, but causes increased red blood cell turnover, which would cause a falsely low hemoglobin A1C level. Right. And another time to avoid A1C is in the diagnosis of gestational diabetes. So here the go-to test is not A1C, but rather is the oral glucose tolerance test. And th this is for several reasons. First of all, gestational diabetes just happens quickly in pregnancy in the second and third trimesters. And there's not a lot of months to have that A1C be reflective of the true glycemic state. And secondly, in pregnancy, there's lots changing. There's slightly lower red blood cell lifespan. There's a dilutional anemia. Right. I remember learning that the red blood cell mass increases by 30%, but the plasma volume itself increases by 50%. Yes. And, and so that discrepancy causes that dilutional anemia. And those increase in, in red blood cells means that more red blood cells are getting into the blood that are not glycated. Exactly. And the last bucket that we really can think of is iatrogenic causes um, of just changes in your red blood cells. So things to remember include blood transfusions and donations, hemodialysis, and erythropoietin therapy in chronic kidney disease, as well as antiretroviral drugs in the treatment of HIV. In patients with HIV receiving antiretroviral treatment, specifically NRTIs, it is important to use glucose levels or fructosamine. 
Right. And we haven't talked about fructosamine, but fructosamine is just another glycated protein that can be used in the setting where hemoglobin levels aren't trustworthy. So anyways, to wrap up, the use of hemoglobin A1c in diagnosing type 2 diabetes is helpful because it's a convenient test that accurately measures long-term blood glucose and as we've talked on a lot, it predicts complications of diabetes. However, it's not the end-all be-all. There are pitfalls and these are important to keep in mind. Another important aspect in the management of type 2 diabetes is treatment monitoring. HbA1c is the benchmark used for the FDA to approve new diabetes drugs, and it's used to monitor response to anti-diabetic medications or lifestyle changes. So we know that 6.5% is the cutoff for diabetes diagnosis. What should the hemoglobin A1c goals be for treatment? Well, as we'll hear, it's not as simple as 7% for everyone. Right. So the American College of Physicians 2018 guidelines for the treatment goals of type 2 diabetes have factored in key studies and previous guidelines from the ADA, the VA, the NIH, and others, and they recommend a range of 7 to 8% for most patients. Huh. So why don't we want the HbA1c as low as possible? Well, here's Dr. Simha again. Will people with a lower A1C have lesser risk of complications? Yes, absolutely. But what is the cost? The cost is an enormously increased risk of hypoglycemia, which will negate all the benefits of the improved glucose control. So therefore, the fine balance is somewhere around 7% Okay, in the DCCT for the type 1 diabetes. So this is in type 1 diabetes, but Dr. Simha goes on to describe many studies in type 2 diabetes, including the ADOPT, ACCORD, and VADT trials that showed similar results. In short, intensive therapy with low A1C targets had no clear mortality or cardiovascular benefits. These would be things like decreased risk of stroke or MI, while the risks of hypoglycemia were great. So that's how the ACP developed their guidelines. In other words, we know really high A1C levels are a risk factor for diabetic complications, but trying to get back to really low A1C levels runs the risk of hypoglycemic events and was even associated with increased mortality in some of these studies. So there's a sweet spot of around 7 to 8% for most patients where we balance preventing complications with keeping the patient safe. And with the macrovascular complications, so there are established associations between elevated A1C levels and the risk of macrovascular disease. But it's important to remember that so much goes into macrovascular risk. We'll hear Dr. Simha talk about this, but these include things like blood pressure, lipid profile, and degree of insulin resistance. Right. So 7 to 8% is the general target, but it does need to be individualized. The ACP 2018 guidelines recognize that the goals may vary on the patient, considering things like other comorbidities, life expectancy, and risks of hypoglycemia. Here are our experts again. Well, the, the most important thing when it comes to the target A1C is, and this sounds kind of hokey, but remember that we don't, we don't treat diabetes. We treat people with diabetes and patients with diabetes. 
And it's, it's so important to, to, to keep that in mind because un- unless you have that approach, you, you can't, you don't know what your A1C goal is. Um, and, but once you, once you recognize that you can really figure out, okay, what's the right A1C for the patient in front of me. So you have to individualize goals. So people who are at increased risk for hypoglycemia, people who don't have a long expected lifespan, okay? So where the benefits of intensive glucose control are not even going to show up, okay? These benefits will show up five years, 10 years afterwards, okay? They're not even going to live that long. So there is clearly no benefit of trying to be aggressive, especially if that would mean increased risk for hypoglycemia. So that's where, you know, your clinical acumen comes in. Okay? So you will have to individualize the A1C targets, looking at the overall health of the patient, the duration of diabetes, the presence of, they've already had complications. In our conversation with Dr. Haftal, we also talked about this approach in the hospital, how if we admit a patient with diabetes who has an A1C of, say, 9 we instinctively want to say that the patient has, quote, uncontrolled diabetes. But we learned from these two experts that, let's put a pause on that instinct, that patient's A1C might actually be at their individualized target goal. Dr. Haftal encouraged us to dig deeper and to understand all of the factors that go into that goal. Wow, yeah, and we are totally guilty of this too. Um, that's just a completely different way from when I first learned about A1C as a target. I always thought the goal was to get patients back down to a normal level of less than 6.5%. Totally, same here. And so the takeaway really is, is that A1C is a great way of monitoring treatment response in diabetes. And while a target of 7 to 8% may be most beneficial, there are nuances for every patient. And I can see this lesson repeating itself throughout our podcast that treating the patient has to take priority over treating a lab value. One last point we want to speak to is the use of hemoglobin A1c in counseling patients, both while diagnosing and treating diabetes. We also want to discuss pre-diabetes, which is diagnosed when an A1c is between 5.7 and 6.4%. Dr. Haftal had a great approach in thinking about using HbA1c as a conversation piece. Use the word prediabetes as opposed to hyperglycemia, uh, impaired fasting glucose. You are kind of evoking that power of of the word diabetes, which for most patients is going to be a very motivating factor, far far more than these more abstract words that we'll often often use. And so when I start the counseling about prediabetes, it's actually a conversation about diabetes, and the first thing you do is you you it's your, you assess their understanding of diabetes, and then you you fill the cup of knowledge, so to speak, about diabetes, and then you can have a conversation about pre-diabetes. And let's remember that hemoglobin A1c can be an important component of the conversation, but there is lots more to consider. Here are some final pearls from Dr. Haftal and Dr. Simha, reminding us that HbA1c is just one piece in this mosaic of cardiovascular risk, and that HbA1c shouldn't replace diligent clinician monitoring of -of point-of-care glucose or a holistic understanding of a patient's psychosocial background. It's, It's next to impossible to be good at managing diabetes if you don't know how to counsel your patients about point of care glucose. 
because at the end of the day, that is going to be the piece that they are going home. That's their that's their daily operations of am I being successful or do I need to make a change? And so as a generalist, as as important it is, is to be able to talk about A1C and to set goals and to guide care plans. Um, uh, it's equally as important, potentially even more so important to be able to navigate those conversations about point of care glucose. Uh, one of the pitfalls I know I've, I fell into early in my training is you come in, the, the A1C is not at goal. You make one change. All right, let's try this medicine. I'll see you back in three months and let's see what that A1C is. Obviously, A1C takes time to turn over. But if, if that's the only way you can counsel patients on your goals, um, you you are going to take it's going to take forever, if not impossible, to get their A1C where you want it. And, um, and, and as time ticks by, those complications go up. And so being able to, to talk to patients about, all right, this is what I want your blood sugar to look like when you're fasting in the morning. This is what it should look like if you ever check it after a meal. If you see this number, this is how I want you to change your insulin or adjust your medication. Um, that is just as important, if not potentially more important, when you have those conversations around blood sugar control. Because cardiovascular disease is not just a glucose thing, okay? So there, glucose is only one of the players. Blood pressure, lipids. Lipids is probably a very important factor. Okay, Smoking, physical fitness, all of these will have an important effect on cardiovascular disease. So if you're only glucose-centric, you're not going to achieve that. Whereas retinopathy okay, is probably is very much a glucose-centric thing. Okay? So you know, even there, retinopathy also, of course, blood pressure has an effect, and we know lipids do have an effect too. Okay, so but to a lesser extent than probably glucose. Okay, whereas with cardiovascular disease, you know, lipids and blood pressure and smoking maybe they have a higher effect than glucose. Okay, um, so yes, so you are right. So the studies have not been uniform in terms of the benefits for both micro and macrovascular complications. What I take from all of those is, yes, glucose control is important, but it is not the sole determinant. Okay? So you need a multifactorial risk factor modification. Okay? You will have to look at lipids and blood pressure at the same time as you look at glucose. The, making the diagnosis of diabetes is easy. Um, knowing medications and how to use these medications, uh, I think is easy. but 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 diabetes is a hard disease to treat because it, to me and this is this is a true uh, a true paradigm for any disease but it's, to me diabetes is the ultimate crossroads between treating a disease in the setting of someone's values beliefs preferences and psychosocial situation and and again this probably is reinforcing my that previous point about the patient but. If you don't understand what their life looks like, what their resources are, who in their life is there to help them, um, what they believe about diabetes, what they what they worry about, you will you will very much very much struggle with diet with with uh, managing diabetes and and that's and that's when I when it comes to it, managing diabetes and it's it is very very difficult to get people at goal. It's it's rarely a matter of diagnosis and right medications. It is a matter of how do I how do I work with this patient to take this new medication or understand that if they 
make these changes in their life, they will be healthier. Or how do I help them better understand this disease and what it can mean for them? That's that's the heart of diabetes. Um, and the A1C, again, is a, is a nice surrogate to know about success and about how well we're doing. But it is uh, it ends up being a very small piece of the conversations that we have around diabetes. Wow, it's been a true journey in really trying to understand the use of HbA1c in clinical practice. So Nathan, let's go over some of the main takeaways from our episode today. First, hemoglobin A1c is a glycated form of hemoglobin and is proportional to the average blood glucose concentrations over the last few months. Second, HbA1c is a helpful tool in diagnosing type 2 diabetes and importantly in predicting diabetic complications but it certainly doesn't replace fasting plasma glucose or other glucose monitoring tools. Important A1C limitations include categories such as changes in red cell turnover, hemoglobinopathies, systemic causes like CKD or pregnancy, and iatrogenic causes. Finally, HbA1c can be used in the monitoring of type 2 diabetes with individualized goals, but generally in the range of 7 to 8%. Things like the risks of hypoglycemia and life expectancy should be carefully considered when establishing targets. Thanks all for listening, and thank you so much to our experts, Dr. Simha and Dr. Haftal. And thank you, Jacob, for being the ultimate podcast partner. And a huge thank you to our classmates and pals, including David Finkel, Lincoln Wirtz, Lindsay Reardon, Jason Lin, and the one and only Mel Logan for helping us with edits as well as Alex Agano for the amazing sound expertise. Just a reminder, this podcast is intended only for medical education and is not medical advice because we are not licensed and it would be unsafe to follow that advice. Views expressed here represent only the views of the person who said them. That's all really good info, Jacob. I'm just wondering what went through your head when I thanked you for being the ultimate podcast partner. Uh, no, of course, a huge thank you. You want to reciprocate? Yeah, it? yeah. A reciprocal thank you. <laughs> so Nathan Rocky yeah. here. Yeah, okay. I just wanted to pick your brain there a little bit at the end. Uh, <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Thank you all. Have a wonderful day. National Glycohemoglobin Standardization Program.